God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We've not always known what God is like, but now we do, according from Brian Zond. We're going through the Gospel of John, and we're asking ourselves the question, how do we understand what God is like by looking at Jesus? We're just focusing in on that aspect as we move through John. And last week, we looked at two people. This is a two-part series. We looked at the Nicodemus, the uh, leader of the Jews who came to Jesus by night, and we looked at the anonymous Samaritan woman at the well whom Jesus spoke with. And last week, we didn't dive into what Jesus said to them. We just compared who they were, the two people next to each other. I'm not going to repeat the whole thing from last week, but this is kind of the slide with which we concluded the differences between these two people. One was a powerful, one was a powerful person with, with position, with a name, and the other was an, an anonymous person, most likely exploited, most likely in a position of shame, certainly in, in the context of the Jewish setting at that time, an outsider. So we did that last week. Uh, the sermon's online if you want to listen to it uh, uh, for the first time or again, feel free. And today we're going to talk about uh, briefly what Jesus said to each of those people. And my thesis this morning is this. Neither Nicodemus nor the Samaritan woman left their conversation with Jesus thinking, now I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Or now I know what I want, what I need to do in order to be sure I go to heaven when I die. You understand what I'm saying here? The question of, do I go to heaven when I die, was most likely on no one's screen in those conversations. That was not a concept that played a role in first century Jewish life. It wasn't on Nicodemus' mind as leader of the Jews, as theologian. And it wasn't on the Samaritan woman's woman's mind. And if you know anything about John chapter 3 and John chapter 4, if you've been in the church for any length of time at all, especially in the evangelical world, or if you've ever come in contact with, uh, for example, a Billy Graham sermon, then you're thinking to yourself, but wait a minute. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have, and here it comes, eternal life. I mean, that's clear, right? That's what Jesus is talking about. And then the famous John 3.16, which Jesus also says to uh, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then he does say to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to 
Obviously, eternal life means when you die, there's eternal life. And usually in the traditional form way of thinking of things, you go either to heaven or you go to hell. I could launch into a whole nerdy lecture about why I don't think that's the case. But I'm going to let the Bible Project do it for us. They have a nice video on eternal life. Uh, and so there's the combination of word and image. And it's said, I think, in a much better way than I could do it. So eternal life. If you know very much about the story of the Bible, you've probably heard that Jesus offers eternal life. <laughs> Sounds nice. But hmm. what does Jesus mean by eternal life. Well, Jesus adopted this phrase from the Hebrew scriptures. In English, it's translated eternal life or sometimes everlasting life. But the phrase literally translated from Hebrew is life unto the age. Life unto the age. What does that mean? Yeah, it's a dense phrase. And to understand it, we need to first talk about what an age is in the Bible. Let's do it. So the Hebrew word for age is olam. And it refers to a period of time. What length of time? Well, any length of time, actually. And it can be in the past or in the future. What matters is that it's a period of time with some common attribute that remains constant. So, for example? So, like the time of Abraham and his descendants all the way up to Moses. The common attribute is it's the time of Moses' ancestors. And so Moses can say, remember the days of the age. The years of past generations and elders. Okay. Or an age can be shorter and in the future. Like Samuel, who's going to spend his full life serving in the temple. During his dedication, his mother Hannah calls this an age. So an age is a period of time that has a unique and constant characteristic. Exactly. And there could be all sorts of different ages, depending on what you want to focus on. You got it. And so someone could live in two ages at the same time, if those ages happen to overlap. All right, so back to the phrase, life unto the age. What age is this talking about? Okay, so in the beginning of the biblical story, humans are made from the dust of the ground. This is a common biblical image for creatures that are mortal. That is, they live in an age where they could die. But God takes humanity and places them in a sacred garden where they're invited to experience a new and deeper kind of life. By eating from the tree of life. Yeah, we're told it offers them life unto the age. A life of infinite potential because it connects them to God's own divine life. But the story takes a turn. And instead of accepting life unto the age, they eat of the tree of knowing good and bad. Right. Taking from this tree means seizing life for themselves on their own terms, apart from God's wisdom. And so they're exiled from life unto the age, and they go into the age of death. They mistreat each other. They do what's right in their own eyes. Things get really violent. Exactly. And so the whole rest of the story of the Bible can be thought of as a choice between two different ages. The age of life on our own terms that leads to death, or the age of God's own life. And while humanity has rejected God's life, God promises he'll open the way back. Exactly. And it's that promise that ultimately leads the story to Jesus. He's presented as God's own life become human, so that both ages overlap in him. He lives in the age of mortality and death, and in the age of eternal life at the same time. And so he can offer people access to life unto the age. 
Right. It's like what Jesus says in the Gospel of John. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Yet, just like humanity rejected God's life in the garden, Jesus was rejected and put to death. But God's life is more powerful than death. And so Jesus rises from the dead, and he can offer God's life to others. Like the Gospel of John also says, Whoever trusts in him will not perish, but has eternal life. That is, life unto the age. Cool. Now, most people think of eternal life as something that happens after you die. But in the Bible, access to this age is something I can have right now. Yeah, remember, Jesus was the place where the age of God's life meets the age of death. And that means that when people trust him, they can experience eternal life here and now. But we also still live in the age of death. So what happens when I die? Well, just like death couldn't overpower God's eternal life in Jesus, similarly, we can remain alive to God even if we're physically dead. In the Bible, this is called being with Christ. And it's not talked about very much because it's not how the overall biblical story ends. The focus of the Bible is about when the age of life completely overcomes the age of death. And those who are with Christ are recreated to share in God's eternal life. A world where the age of death no longer has any power. Exactly. Because life that is fully connected to God's own eternal life and love is a life that will never end. So from now on, whenever you read in the New Testament the words eternal life, you should think about them, maybe even replace that word eternal with the age, the age of God's life. Or as we've said here often, God's space meeting our space. That's what Jesus is talking about to Nicodemus and to the Samaritan, the woman at the well. It's not talking about something that's going to happen in the future after you die, that you need to find the right ticket to get there. You must be born again in order to get there. He's saying to Nicodemus and to the woman at the well, God's age, this eternal age, is here now. And it's present with me. It's broken into this world. So if you take out the going to heaven when you die idea, as you read what Jesus said to these two people, let's, let's look at it again, and we can only do it briefly, and try to understand what Jesus is really saying to each of these people. And let's start with Nicodemus. We're just going to take a section of it. John chapter 3, verses 3 to 8 should appear on your screen. There's a Bible somewhere around you close, or if you have your own, feel free to follow along. Jesus answered Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, and I think I meant, I don't know if remember if I mentioned this last week, but that word again really means from above. So here's another switch in your reading of the scriptures. When you read the term born again, you can say it means born from above. Again, that's this whole idea of God's age. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? 
Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again or born from above. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus looks at Nicodemus, this man who is deeply embedded, born and raised and taught about his privilege, about his race. He's the Jew. He's a Jew, the purest race about his position, about his wealth, about his honor, about his responsibilities, about his leadership, about the responsibility that he has to teach Israel as as a rabbi. And intertwined with all of that was the politics of the time was the economics of the time. The cultural, religious, and spiritual battles of the time. Jews were occupied by the Romans. And the one thing that every Jew longed for was that the Messiah would come and the Romans would be booted out of the land. And Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, was one of those charged, making sure, using every power that he had, together with the other leaders, to make sure that Israel was ready for that to happen. It was physical. It was feelable. It was the reality of every day. There's nothing future about it. It was right here and right now. All focused on bringing this age of God's life, this age of the Messiah into our world today. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, your power and position and privilege and wealth and education is not going to do it. If it's going to happen, and of course it is going to happen, if it's going to happen, It's got to come in from outside. See what Jesus is saying? Nicodemus, you're sitting here just deeply entrenched in who you are. And you hope and you pray and you think something's going to change. But it ain't. It's only going to change if something breaks in from above. And Jesus, in this particular case, uses the born from above image, this birth idea, something dramatically changes when a baby leaves the mother's womb and enters the world. And Jesus says, nothing you can do will bring this age in. It has to come from the from above, and it does... It has come from above because God so loved the world 
that he sent his only son, that whoever unites with him won't perish in this age of death, but will be connected to this age of life. You see how that John 3.16 gets, in my opinion, for what it's worth, a whole new meaning. It's not telling you about a ticket, how to get a ticket to get somewhere in the future. Saying, no, we are in this world of death and God loved us so much that he that he broke the barrier and came in this age of God, this age of life, this age of God's life, broke in in Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus, and this is what he did. To Nicodemus, that man of power. What was Jesus saying to the Samaritan woman, this anonymous woman, this woman who had no power, this woman who was excluded Remember, we tried very hard last week not to paint her necessarily in a negative, sinful light. Again, I'm not going to repeat all that. But please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to paint her as some kind of a wicked slut. But certainly, she was outside and exploited and had very little voice within her village and her community, and certainly in relationship to Nicodemus, the powerful Jew. She would not even have made it onto the temple grounds. And Jesus says to her, and it should appear on your screen, everyone who drinks of this water, they're they're by this well of Jacob, and I read this week that behind this well or underneath this well or somehow feeding this well was a spring. Normally when you when you dig a well, you just you just dig down and you tap into you tap into water. But somehow behind this this well, this well of Jacob that everyone knew was an actual spring that was bubbling. So that's what Jesus was tapping into. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus flips the image, changes the image, and sitting by this spring, by this well, with this woman, this victim, talks about this water springing up. The Samaritan woman had no say over her life. She had no position, most likely was poor. Certainly excluded from the Jewish temple worship, rejected by the Jews and especially Jewish men. Remember how surprised he was that she was that a Jewish man would even talk to her. And longing for this new age. She was a theologian. You remember her, Jesus talked to her about giving her this water. She said, please do what I I need it. I need it. Give it to me. And then very quickly, she brought up this whole discussion about where we should worship God in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim here in Samaria. A theologian searching because her need was so great. 
Nicodemus had another kind of need, other kinds of needs. This woman had this deep personal need to be freed, to be released from this age of death into new life. And Jesus says, this age has come. In me, this age has come. It's come for you, and it's come for your people. And no amount of exploitation, exclusion, poverty, brokenness, sin, or rejection, or shame can keep this water from bubbling through and breaking forth into the life of the age. So are you getting a little idea of what John is showing us, what Jesus is doing with these two people? Nicodemus, a promoter and perpetrator of the age of death, he was going to bring about, along with all of his compatriots, he was going to bring about this age of life, this age of God, by the use of force, by the use of the means of the empire, by the use of the tools of the age of death. Jesus said, uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. Unless you get born again, unless this age of God breaks in, unless God so loves the world that he sends his son Jesus, this isn't going to change. And the Samaritan woman is this victim. Excluded, shamed, kept outside, and is powerless to do anything about it. And Jesus said, yes, you will remain powerless. You won't be able to do anything about this situation in which you find yourself until you connect with this stream of water bubbling up that no one can stop. It's coming from outside, in this case, underneath. The ones from above, this is underneath. And it's bubbling up, and it's living water, and it's changing everything. And the one who drinks of it will never thirst again. So Jesus is saying to all of us, not Here's what you need to do to get a ticket to get there when you die. The Bible talks about that. I'm not saying the Bible doesn't talk about that. But that's not what this is about. Jesus is saying to each one of us as individuals, where are you today? And you're likely, as we said last week, a mix of Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. We're privileged people. We have wealth. We have education. We have power. Even racially, we're on the good side of the card. All of us here. All of us listening. In that sense, we're like Nicodemus. And so tempted to use 
the tools of the age of death to grab our life. And all of us are at the same time in one way or another victims like the Samaritan woman. We've been shamed or we feel ashamed or perhaps we've been rejected in a relationship or rejected by parents or rejected by some group or kept outside or excluded perhaps even abused, perhaps struck by illness of a physical kind or a mental kind that we just can't get out of. Struggling with our work. I want to go somewhere, but I can't. The stars are aligned against me. And what Jesus is saying to you as an individual God's age in me is breaking in. I'm not going to solve all your problems. I'm not going to mean that tomorrow you're getting whatever it is you're searching for, good or bad. But I am with you. This age is breaking in. It's not hopeless. And you are not alone and not lost in this age of death. The same is true, I think, for Trinity Church. What would it look like to think God's age is breaking into us as a community? Because this is not just, in spite of all that evangelical Western churches have taught us over the centuries, this is not about the individual in the end. When Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, that word you is plural. You can't see it in the English. In other languages, you can see it. So Jesus and Nicodemus are by themselves alone in this room, and Jesus looks at him and says, all of you must be born again. Whoa. It's necessary for something to happen from above in order to change where we are today. What would that look like for Trinity Church? It's necessary for something to happen from above or this spring of water to bubble up so that new life, not that there's not life here already, I'm not suggesting that, but that new life could bubble up and be born and be drunk. And what about our society? This age of death in which we find ourselves. An age that's almost as full of tension as the age back in the first century, uh, Jerusalem was. You all know all about it. I don't have to say much more about it, but we all feel it. The age of death. And yet God has said, I love the world so much. I love the individual so much. I love the community, the family, the community so much. I love this world so much that I'm sending Jesus to show you what God is like, to have this age of life break into this age of death. Not when you die, not sometime in the future, unreachable, but today. 
what would it mean for you and for us to grab that, to, to, to make it our own, to appropriate it? How would that change how we think, how we live, how we look at other people? How would that change how we look at God's creation and how we treat it? How would that change how we think about our economics, our politics, our justice? We need love, the love of God, to rescue us. And without that love of God, we are lost. We just are not going to be able to do it. That's not a punishment. It's not a cracking of the whip. It's just the reality. We're just not going to be able to do it unless love breaks in and rescues us.